welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Martin Eden by Jack London. In the first part, we met Martin Eden and learned how he was introduced to middle-class life, how he became enamored with a bougie woman named Ruth Morse, and we also learned how he began to reform himself, his habits, his manners, uh, and the things he reads in hopes of becoming accepted by Ruth and the life of the mind that he sees as alive among the middle class. Then we watch as Martin Eden abandons his working class career for a job as a writer. He is frustrated to learn that the works he submits are not accepted and he ends up not getting paid for the many things he writes. He begins to struggle to make ends meet while continuing his diligent work as a writer and continuing his education all at the same time. Now Jack London makes clear that this book is about the struggles of young writers and the struggle of working class people who want to move out of their class uh, or at least pursue interests that aren't commonly valued by people of their class. At the, he's at the same time, Martin Eden is not accepted by the middle class and upper classes because of his vulgarity, his lower class background, his uncouth way of speaking at times, um, and later on for even ideological reasons. And even that is a bit misunderstood, but we won't see that for a couple episodes. And then at the same time, Eden becomes less and less understood by the people of his own class and becomes more alienated by the people of his family. We begin to realize by the time we get to the second quarter of the novel that Martin Eden's story cannot ever have a fully happy ending, even if he makes it as a writer. Well, we left off in chapter 11, so we'll just push on from there. I urge you to go back and listen to my first episode on Martin Eden if you haven't uh, done that yet. Um, but you're welcome to join in with us right now at, um, at, at chapter 12. A major theme of the second quarter of Martin Eden is the institutional forces preventing Eden from making it as a writer. Some of these are quite personal. Two characters in particular work very hard to make it as difficult as possible for Eden to focus on his writing. The first of these is Ruth. This is the woman that Martin wants to court. But she always wants Martin to use his talents to get a proper middle-class job. She realizes he's smart, she re he realizes he has talent, but she's always constantly on him to get an education, to go back to school, so not so you become a good writer necessarily, but so he can get a decent job that will impress her family and kind of establish a strong middle-class life for them. Eden insists on writing, but this only creates a growing gap between Ruth and Martin as the novel goes on. A second kind of personal block comes from his own family, in this case his brother-in-law, Mr. Higginbotham. I did not talk much about him in the last episode, although I did mention him. Uh, we know he's kind of hanging out with his sister and his brother-in-law, and they don't really seem to like Eden hanging around too much. They'd rather he goes off to sea and get, get a job. But he becomes a bigger role in the story later on in the novel. He runs... Mr. Higginbotham, his brother-in-law, runs the Higginbotham Cash Store, which is essentially a grocery store. Higginbotham sees himself as an upwardly mobile, self-made man. In this way, he has a lot in common with Martin Eden. But he relies heavily on Eden's sister to do the day-to-day -day chores of the house. And again, like this is kind of foreshadowing the end of the novel, but by the end of the novel, Higginbotham is almost completely dependent on Eden's success. So it, it becomes exposed as a very hypocritical figure by the by the end. Eden certainly feels he has no place in the class structure he wants to enter. 
the character that best exemplifies this is, I think, Lizzie Connolly. This is a would-be girlfriend or an even a would-be wife for Martin Eden. Lizzie Connolly is, I think she's there as the girl that London thinks Martin Eden should have pursued. She loves him for you. She understands. She's infatuated with him. But she understands his brilliance and his potential, and she supports him. She's not. She's one of the few characters that doesn't judge his writing or the choices he makes. And in fact, if not for his infatuation with Ruth, Ruth Morse, we likely would have seen Martin Eden joining up with this woman like Lizzie. But at the same time, without Ruth, Martin Eden probably never would have gotten into the life of um, the profession of a writer. But Eden at one point even admits that he belongs to girls like like Lizzie. So he says, who are you, Martin Eden? He demanded of himself in the looking glass that night when he got back to his room. He gazed at himself long and curiously. Who are you? What are you? Where do you belong? You belong by rights to girls like Lizzie Connolly. You belong with the legion of toil, with all that is low and vulgar and unbeautiful. You belong with the oxen and the drudgers, in dirty surroundings among smells and stenches. These are, these are the stale vegetables now. Those potatoes are rotting. Smell them. Damn you, smell them, and yet you dare open the books, to listen to beautiful music, to learn to love beautiful paintings, to speak good English, to think thoughts that none of your own kind thinks, to tear yourself away from the oxen and the Lizzie Connollys, and to love a pale spirit of a woman who's a million miles beyond you and who lives in the stars. Who are you, and what are you? Damn you, and are you going to make good? End quote. Now, this is a challenge that he levels to himself, and there's a lot of despairing language towards Lizzie Connolly. But as the novel goes on, we find that there's actually more there to that relationship and that these descriptions of her are not accurate at all and that she's a much more complex figure and more sensitive and much more appreciative of Martin Eden than, than even he knew. Well, in Chapter 13, we are introduced to Martin's philosophical interests. Um, this is a big part of the novel um, for a couple of reasons. One is he's a very strong social Darwinist, a Spencerian, a f follower of Herbert Spencer. And he's a, you know, a social Darwinist and, and a strong individualist. But at the same time, he gets confused. He gets uh, misunderstood by people as kind of a working class radical and a socialist. And here we, we have London... Uh, I think really pointing out the stupidity of the press and the media and the and the, you know how like the just the the masses the and especially the media don't really understand artists or writers and their complexities and the way they think. I, I think the way the reason he gets labeled as a socialist is because he goes to a socialist meeting, but he's there actually to criticize them and challenge them to kind of intellectual debate. It's almost as if a reporter was going to a debate between an atheist and a, and a theist, and then writes up that the atheist is actually a, a Bible thumper because he was at a church or something. Uh, that's essentially what happens, but it, it's showing kind of the, the shallowness of, of the media. But certainly the philosophy is a big part of this novel, and if you're not interested in philosophy, uh, the contemporary philosophy of, of London's life, this might be hard parts to get through. And, you know, I'm not saying I knew all the philosophical references mentioned, uh, in the course of the novel, so I'll do the best I can. But certainly he becomes enamored with Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was a giant of a thinker. And if we go over to visit Spencer's Wikipedia page, we can get a sense of his intellectual authority in the early 20th century in a wide variety of fields. 
Now, he's most well known for the survival of the fittest thing, which is something he applied to Darwin, which is it's a term Darwin has never used. But and of course, he's the one who's most known for transferring Darwin's theories of bio biology to societies and to sociology. So if you just look, I'm just not going to I'm going to read I'm going to read the Wikipedia here, but you know, he's got subsections here on all kinds of things, on his synthetic philosophy, uh, his on biological evolution and thermodynamics, uh, his evolutionary thought, his social Darwinism, his sociological thoughts, right? Um, agnosticism. And he wrote something like, I don't know, like 20 different books. Uh, I haven't read much Spencer myself. I just kind of know him from secondary materials that mention him or refer to him. Um, but I, at one point, I did own Principles of Psychology, which I, I never got around to reading. I got, it, I found it for like a dollar at a used bookstore, and I picked it up. But I never got around to to reading it. Um, I think his big work, the most important work, is I think the Principle of Ethics, which is actually part of his system of synthetic philosophy, which is like a fifteen or ten. 20 volume like huge work all right it says here 10 volumes so it's a it's a really massive work but um you'd have to really be a brave person to go and to read it to read it but the point i want to make here is simply that spencer was a big figure in jack london's time he influenced jack london himself now we know jack london turned away from spencer politically and if you know london was a socialist but he wasn't the kind of socialist who thought we're going to have socialism you know after a revolution next week Right. And in fact, if you know, the Iron Heel makes clear that London thought socialism would be the result of a long, bloody, brutal struggle over centuries of, you know, and coming only after a great degree of social and cultural and political and economic evolution in many different ways. So he's a socialist, you know, kind of in the same, you know, almost in a Kropotkin sense, really looking to the long term future of, soci of societies. And their, and their long-term development. Now, why was Eden so attracted to, to Herbert Spencer? Well, we get some suggestions in this chapter. And he's attracted for a reason that I think many people are attracted, young, young thinkers are attracted to, to like big ideas and big philosophers. Philosophers that can kind of package many different things into, into one thing that they can kind of gobble up. All right? I even remember this as a younger person being attracted to certain philosophies. In fact, one reason I was kind of interested in Marx early on is he kind of did create this kind of nice package that you could use to understand all, you know, all these new confusing things you're learning, you know, in the university uh, and just kind of growing up and about life. So you can kind of fit it all into a one package. And, and Eden's sort of like Spencer for that reason. He says, or London writes, what in a way most profoundly impressed Martin was the correlation of knowledge, of all knowledge. He had been curious to know things and whatever he acquired he had filed away in separate memory compartments in his bank. Thus, on the subject of sailing, he had immense store. But on the subject of women, he had a fairly large store. But on, but these two subjects have been unrelated. Between the two, memory compartments have been no connection. That, in the fabric of knowledge, there should be any connection whatsoever between a woman with hysterics and a schooner carrying a weather helm or heaving in to a gale would have struck him as ridiculous and impossible. But Herbert Spencer has shown him not only that it was not ridiculous, but that it was impossible for there not to be a connection. All things were related to all their things, from the farthermost star in the waste of space to the myriad of atoms in the grain of sand under one's foot. And this new concept was a perpetual amazement to Martin. 
end quote. So we have here a very youthful attraction to the big idea philosopher who can who can answer all the questions and make all the connections that need to be made. It is, however, a bit intellectually lazy because it it you know it doesn't force people to make those connections themselves and to you know make draw their own connections between things. It's it's kind of done for you. The hard work of thinking is done for you by someone else. Now, one thing he learns talking with the middle-class intellectuals at this time is that they are mere consumers of ideas, right? And in a way we could say Eden's also a consumer of ideas, but Eden would never say that about himself, but maybe as his readers may say, he's not that much better, but he certainly looks at them and sees them as mere consumer of ideas. Um, he takes what they have to say more seriously though. Uh, there's a conversation he has with someone and it's, I think it's like, well, I, I, I've come across Herbert Spencer or something, but he wasn't like instantly life-changing event reading it for him it was just another book you bet right or it's uh something you prepare for talking around the dinner table or something he was profoundly bothered by the promiscuity of so many middle-class people in respect to their intellectual loyalties they in short lacked principles so in chapter 14 martin eden decides to begin showing his work to Ruth Morse for her opinion and for her support. Prior to this, he's only shown it to his sister and he didn't really get much help from his sister. His sister, you know, just like fun, interesting stories and kind of missed the point of a lot of what Eden was trying to write. But this chapter is most important maybe because it has London's very famous description of a machine-like process of editorial rejection. It's a very, very memorable scene here and I, it's, it's worth reading. Because he starts to see himself as part of a machine and all the editors and the post office and all this com connected into one big machine. Almost like how Herbert Spencer was connecting everything together. Uh, Eden was seeing like the whole profession of writing and publishing connected into kind of one giant machine. Quote, but his chief trouble was not that he did not know any editors or writers. And not merely did he not know any writers, but he didn't know anyone who had ever attempted to write. There was no one to tell him, to hint to him, to give him the least word of advice. He began to doubt that editors were real men. They seemed cogs in a machine. That was what it was, a machine. He poured his soul into stories, articles, and poems, and he entrusted them to the machine. He folded them just so, put the proper stamps inside the long envelope along with the manuscript, sealed the envelope, and put more stamps outside and dropped it in the mailbox. It traveled across the continent, and after a certain lapse of time, the postman returned with the manuscript in another long envelope, on the outside of which were stamps he had enclosed. There was no human editor at the other end, but a mere cunning arrangement of cogs that changed the manuscript from one envelope to another and then struck on the stamps. It was like a slot machine wherein one dropped pennies and with a metallic whirl of machinery had delivered him a stick of chewing gum or a tablet of chocolate. It depended upon which slot one dropped the penny in, whether one got chocolate or gum, and so with the editorial machine. One slot brought checks and the other brought rejection slips. So far he had found only the latter slot, slot end quote. Um, and here we're reminded of how bureaucracies seem to work. We have more and more people, both in the private and the public sector, working in bureaucratic institutions doing paperwork. And that seems to create value. It must create some value. Otherwise, why would people do it, right? But it, it's hard to imagine what kind of value is actually being created by bureaucracy. Um, so you kind of get this machine, you feel this feeling that you're just running through the machines, running through the, doing the hoops, running through the hoops, running through the process just to do it. And 
there's no real reason for it, right? All Eden really wants is a human touch at this point. He just want he he. I think at one point in the novel he even says something like, "If if an editor just said like this sucks on top of it, he would be happier because at least he would get some feedback, right?" What Eden cannot understand is why he's always being rejected when the other works he reads are of inferior quality and they seem to get published all the time. He will realize later actually how arbitrary the process is when he becomes successful and all these works that previously got rejected get sold for a bunch of money, right? But as a young writer, he is assuming that the best works get published, right? Just like perhaps young academics want to think that the best scholar gets the job or gets published. That's not always the case, right? There's a lot of other factors at work. And, and Eden's just not connected enough with the field. He doesn't really have friends who support him very much. So he doesn't really have any way of getting out of this. This is why he begins to take his work to Ruth. Little does she know that she does, or little does he know that she does not share his spirit or intellectual capacity. And therefore, he's basically wasting his um, time giving it to her. In fact, none of the people he has really read his work, you know, whether it's his sisters or his editors, is really his equal. And that's that's both kind of from his point of view and from us. I mean, we realize how smart Eden is and his work certainly has value, but no one who's re reading it seems to really appreciate what, he, what he's reading. Her advice to him is predictable and very banal. She says he lacks refinement and his writing needs to be similarly subject to a great deal of refinement. And this is essentially what Ruth has been saying about Martin Eden from the first page of the novel. So we're we're almost halfway into the novel, right? At least 35, 40% into this novel. And all we really got out of Ruth is that Martin Eden needs to clean himself up a little bit and speak better English. And whether it's about his writing or his interpersonal relations, it's always about being more refined, being more bougie. Is, is essentially what she wants. All right, chapter 15. Uh, here we start to get introduced to some of Eden's money troubles that are mounting. He spends a lot of his liquid currency uh, into stamps because that's the only way he can get his writing career going. He begins to pawn his furniture for postage money uh, to send out these manuscripts. But most of this chapter, however, is a flashback to Eden's first fight as a child or his first series of fights as a child. And it's a prolonged kind of backstory, and it's an important chapter. In this, in the sense, we see the streets calling back to Eden in a way through memory. You know, when he remembers his his youthful time on the streets and in the working class community. But there's another lesson that Eden gets out of this. And I don't think this is the first time this happens, or even the last time in the novel, where he remembers something and he he misinterprets it, just like with Lizzie Connolly, where we might read this and say, you know, Lizzie is the one you should really try to pursue. But he reads it and says, no, she's why I need to move into another class, why I need to be with someone like Ruth. So he kind of gets the wrong lesson for that. And that might be the case here with this fight. The person he's battling is Cheeseface. Um, I think he's an older boy and he's constantly fighting this guy. Cheeseface and Martinita are constantly fighting. And it's like, like almost an everyday event at some point. And day in and day out, he's you know, facing this bully, essentially. And then finally, he fights Cheeseface and beats him, right? And this only happens at the beginning of his adulthood. Now, the moral of this story for Eden is, and this is what he takes out of his life from the streets, is resilience, 
But it's also how the streets bring out the worst in him and in others and create a situation of almost Darwinian violence and, and conflict. And we get some language here that, that's kind of familiar, familiar if we read White Fang or Call of the Wild. We'll look at those novels in a, in a few weeks, I'm sure. Quote, then they fell upon each other like young bulls in all the glory of youth with naked fists and hatred, with desire to hurt, to maim, to destroy. All the painful thousands years gains of man in his upward climb through creation were lost. Only the electric lights remained, a milestone on the path of the great human adventure. Martin and Chief's face were two savages of the Stone Age, of the squatting place and the tree refuge. They sank lower and lower into the muddy abyss, back into the dredges of the raw beginnings of life, striving blindly and chemically as atoms strive in the stardust of the heavens colliding, reconciling, and colliding again, and eternally again. Right? So there's almost a primordial reduction to this, like the brute laws of, of nature. Right? A very social Darwinian interpretation of these, of these events. Okay, um, but the lesson he takes is be resilient. Eventually those editors will, will be defeated. So at this point, the editors become the outright enemies of Martin Eden. Okay, chapter 16. Here, Martin begins to go back to work because he's out of money, and he takes up work in a laundry in order to stay afloat. His, I don't want to say boss, kind of supervisor maybe? I mean, he's, he's also a, a shop floor worker, but I think he's the one who re recruited Martin Eden. But his name's Joe Dawson, and he's, a, he's like a skilled worker uh, at, the, at the laundry. And he's going to play a, a very brief but important role in the novel. He is going to be another path that the diligence uh, that, that Eden displays could have went in other directions. It's basically, there's a few characters here that are ways out for Martin Eden. One is, I think, Lizzie. One is Joe Dawson. And the other is someone we're going to meet um, probably in the next episode. But for these two, these are both of the working class. And one is the woman and one is the man, right? And so it's kind of what the future for for Martin Eden could have been if he decided to set aside writing and just you know try to live as happy a life as he could as a, as a working class person now Joe uh, worked his way up to becoming like a, an important person in the laundry so he's got this kind of upward mobility that Higginbotham has and that Martin Eden also embraces so Joe though is also a symbol of what Eden perhaps had lost when he entered a life of, of book learning. Or what I know, what I mean to say here is that Joe's a symbol of what Eden is losing by entering this life of book learning. He's losing his connections to his working class roots. Quote, Martin knew of the enormous gulf between him and this man, the gulf that books had made, but he found no difficulty in crossing back over that gulf. He had lived all his life in the working class world and the camaraderie of labor was second nature with him. He solved the difficulties of transportation that were too much for the others aching heads. He would send trucks, okay, blah, 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 end quote. Um, now, I don't know if that's entirely honest, the way it's presented here. I do think Eden is gradually losing his connections to, to the working class, although maybe not fully yet, because he's still very poor. Now, Joe Dawson is a symbol for the rising mechanization and degradation of work due to scientific management, and how the, the improvements that working class people bring into the factory through their skills or knowledge or, you know, just hard work could, uh, could actually help degrade life, right? So this kind of mechanization of, of, of work in the factory is something that's embraced by Joe Dawson. 
And there's a section about that here. So, but the lesson here is that Joe Dawson is creative, but all the profits of his creativity is going to his his bosses, right? So that's that's a kind of really one of the criticisms here of of staying in the working class, right? Is his the creativity, which is real. I mean, you can be as creative on a factory floor as you can, you know, on a computer. Um, but the problem is that that wealth is being distributed to the top. Um, of course, there's many people these days very creative on YouTube, doing podcasts, doing other things, producing a lot of value, um, but not value that's really easily marketized. And it, the value that is created is often going to the people who just create the platform, right? They, they're not really creating any of the value. And the people who've invented Facebook or YouTube weren't really creating the value. It's the people who contribute to it. Um, but anyways... We're going to spend a couple chapters in the in the laundry. Uh, chapter seventeen basically is still in the laundry. Martin Eden is still working in the laundry, and London writes with brilliance on the difficulty of work and just how brutal it was. We can begin to understand why Eden wants to to work so hard to escape working class labor. It's a really wonderful section where you get a lot of detail about just how horrible this work is. And one thing that this labor begins to do is to drive Martin Eden towards drink. And this drink is filling a soul that is increasingly being killed in his job. Um, and I won't say too much about this now because basically we get the same kind of lecture in John Barleycorn. And I'll talk more about it there. But if you go to page 694, the Library of America version of Martin Eden uh, and, and those novels, you can read this passage where he starts to even hate himself. He starts to talk about how the hard work just makes him need drink just to kind of recover from from labor right and it makes it impossible for him to think anymore or to be creative right work is just so brutal uh and boring and there's so much drudgery that he's not able to to pursue his life as a writer part-time and you know i think there's truth to that right i've had jobs i certainly didn't do much writing when i had full-time jobs all right, chapter 18. Joe Dawson here tries to give Martin his way out. He tries to convince him to quit his job and to go on the roads with him as a hobo. Martin, meanwhile, is losing any creativity he has, his mind being devastated by work and then the drink he turns to after work. And so just in general, again, this impact of work on creativity, I think, is an important point that, that Jack London is trying to make here, that they're really not reconcilable. Right. This idea that you can you can create so much while still going to work every day is is a, is a myth. I guess there's a lesson here that maybe we should give the creative people, artists, some ability to to survive, even if their works are not necessarily marketable. Now, I guess Jack London's work were marketable. He he made money, and publishers made money from him. But there's a lot of great writers who really, you know, didn't initially. So. And how many great writers are in the weeds, unable to get their ideas out because they're just working out of Walmart or whatever? But anyways, Martin and Joe both eventually quit their jobs. Uh, Joe is going to actually go hoboing, and Martin Eden is going to go back, um, go back to the sea. They both commit to replacing the confines of the labor for the road of sorts, kind of going back into the fresh air, the open air. I think there's a, a correlation between their choices, you know, the sea and hoboing. But Martin didn't give up to go writing, right? But he, he does think that the sea can 
be a better platform for clearing one's mind to write. Chapter 19. Here Eden expresses his desire to go back to see go back to the sea to Ruth. He tells Ruth what's going to happen. Ruth would rather he continue to work in Oakland and try to move into middle class professions. He talks to her about how work was pushing him to drink. He even thinks of writing an account of how work wears away the souls of people. And in fact, Jack London will write a bit of this in John Barleycorn, a few chapters of it. Ruth's parents worry that an engagement is coming and Ruth and between Ruth and Martin, and so they try to talk her out of it by describing Martin as basically another drunken, whoring sailor. That's a pretty brutal message because Ruth and Eden have been together, sort of dating for quite a while here, um, and she definitely has feelings for him. But this is the point the parents finally have their chat with her and try to talk her out of, out of the marriage. Quote, I'm afraid we'll, Martin Eden will never grow up. He does not take responsibility in a man's work in our world like your father did or like our friends. Mr. Butler, for one. Martin Eden, I'm afraid, will never be a money earner. And this world is so ordered that money is necess necessary to happiness. Oh no, not those swollen fortunes, but enough of money to permit of common comfort and decency. Now, where is the passage where they accuse him of being a of, oh, give me a second. Let me find it. It's a really kind of funny passage. They they use this kind of middle class cagey language, but they essentially accuse Martin Eden of being a a whoremonger. So here it is. It says, "You'll be ha you'll find so one someday, and you will love him and be loved by him, and you will be happy with him as your father and I have been happy with each other." And there's one thing you must always carry in your mind. Yes, mother. Mrs. Morse's voice was low and sweet as she said, And that is the children. I, I have thought about them, Ruth confessed, remembering the wanton thoughts that had vexed her in the past, her face again red with maiden sh shame that she should be telling such things. And it is that the children that makes Mr. Eden impossible, Mrs. Morse went on incisively. Their heritage must be clean, and he is, I'm afraid, not clean. Your father has told me of sailors' lives, and, and you understand. End quote. Um, of course, this is before penicillin, so there might have been a real concern of, of, of STDs. Um, I did some research years ago into an anti-VD campaign in New York City, and a lot of the propaganda and writing was about this fear that men are going to bring so-called social diseases into, into the family. Now, when they hear that Martin is going to see, they conspire, this is Ruth's parents, they conspire against the relationship by sending her away so that when Martin comes back from his voyages, Ruth will be off like with her cousin or something like that. Okay, chapter 20. Now, during his recuperation from work, and it's, we're kind of reminded here how long this recuperation is, he really had to put some time into just basically recovering from work. Martin Eden picks up the writing bug again, and this saves him from going to the sea. Meanwhile, Eden and Ruth are able to spend some time together, and this develops into love on Ruth's part, and she basically begins to fall for Martin Eden. She tries to avoid committing to her feelings, knowing that Eden will soon be parting. And, of course, it's true that many relationships are broken by work and travel um, and just that distance. And I, I think this is one of the big problems of work is... You know, whatever your feelings on monogamy might be, 
I think we all can agree that if people spend more time together and work on their work, I don't want to use that word work for relationships, but, you know, cultivate and, and develop their relationships with people, you know, they'll be healthier, right? And, and whatever kind of arrangement they want to work out uh, between themselves. But that takes time, right? If you're just seeing them for a few hours every night and on every other weekend or something, it's not really the foundation for a, a strong family. Um, so chapter 21, and just like that, Ruth and Eden decide to get engaged. Martin makes the move to secure his relationship with Ruth. Now, the issue that comes to his mind when he finally makes his engagement is, we're not surprised to learn class. It's the issue that keeps coming up again and again in this novel. The barrier to his relationship with Ruth from the beginning was, was class. Quote, class difference was the only difference, and class was extrinsic. It could be shaken off. A slave, he had read, had risen to the Roman purple. That being so, he could rise to Ruth. Under her purity and saintliness and culture and ethereal beauty of soul, she was in all things fundamentally human, just like Lizzie Connolly and all Lizzie Connollys. All that was possible with them was possible with her. She could love and hate, maybe even have hysterics. And she could certainly be jealous, as she was jealous now, uttering her last sobs in his arms. But it's... It's striking that at this late moment when they've already deciding to get married that that Martin Eden still has to justify that, you know, this class barrier can be transcended. And he's still thinking about Lizzie Connolly in the back of his head. Well, chapter 22, uh, Ruth breaks the news to her parents who are not at all excited to see their daughter marry a working class man who embraces a foolish dream of becoming a writer. Meanwhile, Eden realizes he can't go to sea and decides, you know, he's trying to build a family now and he decides to try to make a living from hack writing. Basically writing ephemeral and doggerels and kind of vulgar short pieces. You know, some things are like short little stupid poems that he can sell for a dollar or something. And he does start to sell this stuff. It, it sells better than his stories, which he's, he's not getting any sales for, but it's just bringing in trickles of, of money. He figures he can more easily sell these doggerels and vulgar short pieces to cheap popular magazines than he can his stories and essays. He thinks a couple years of making a living selling hack work can be the foundation of a, of a brand new career. And she so still thinks that he should start a career as like a businessman or professional and give up writing altogether. And we so like, as you know, they even agreed to marry and they still can't really, they're just talking past each other. And especially Ruth is talking past Eden all the time about about this it's ridiculous that to think that he could become a businessman right he doesn't have the temperament for it he doesn't have the background or the education for it but she still thinks you know if you just get refined there you go back and go, go back to school you can um move up in the life and it, it completely misunderstands this man she purports to love martin rejects this he does not have a, the character to be an institutional man he knows it and we know it um we can ask this question is white collar work better than blue collar work Right, middle, and in some ways, perhaps it is. But you know, I've I've done both, and I can't see much difference. I, I guess if I had to choose, I'd almost pick blue collar work, um, factory work. And, you know, a little less BS in the day to day life. Chapter twenty three. Uh, much of this chapter is about Martin justifying his love for Ruth. Ruth, she seems to agree with him on so few things. So why does he love her? 
he decides that love is a mystical, transcendent thing that must overpower the rational. And, and he's probably getting this idea of overpowering, overcoming the rational from Nietzsche a little bit. Quote, All this he realized, but he did not affect his love for her, nor her love for him. Love was too fine and noble, and he was too loyal a lover for him to besmirch love with criticism. What did love have to do with Roos' divergent views of art, right conduct, the French Revolution, or equal suffrage? They were mental processes. But love was beyond reason. It was super rational. He could not belittle love. He worshipped it. Lay, love lay on the mountaintops beyond the valley land of reason. It was a sublimated condition of existence, the topmost peak of living, and it came rarely. Well, Martin Eden then, uh, you know, he's writing this hack work. He has to live very economically to, to sustain his life as, as a writer. He lives for about $250 a month in a small own or a small room owned by a Portuguese woman named Maria Silvia. And she's going to be an important character in the second half of the novel. She has yet another another connection to working class life that seems to um, that he seems to break from. But there is some mutual reliance on each other. For instance, Maria Silvia often cooks for him. and She does much of the labor and caring for Martin Eden's body and soul, doing laundry and cooking for him. Now, later on, Eden is going to accuse his brother-in-law of, of making his sister work his sister work for him, for his brother-in-law. But you see here, Martin Eden's kind of doing the same thing to his landlady, Maria Silvia. Around this time, he writes an essay called, on, called Stardust, which seems to be about beauty, criticism, and human creativity. It's not fully clear to me what some of these articles, philosophical articles that Eden writes are really about. I'm sure a, a closer reader might catch some of those details or someone who's more philosophically inclined than, than me. But this is part of a movement in his career towards professional philosophy beyond his fiction writing. And this is what's going to be his breakout work. It's going to be philosophy, not, not this fiction. So chapter 24. At the midpoint of the novel, Martin Eden is in dire straits. He's out of money. He's trying to work on starting a family. He's not loved by his future planned in-laws. He has not sold much of anything to any publisher and his debts are piling up around town. Martin Eden responds to all this by sticking to his intellectual commitments and writing a philosophical essay. It only adds to his pile of unpublished manuscripts, though. But it will be his philosophy that helps him break out of his poverty eventually. But we'll need to wait until later in the novel for that. So that ends the second quarter of Martin Eden. In this part of the novel, London presents a struggling writer who almost gave up on his talent and accepted a life of working class drudgery. London, though, shows how a life of the mind and a life of hard labor cannot combine well. Although he comes close to Ruth through his engagement, he realizes, and we realize, that this relationship is on a very fragile and poor foundation. The only thing he can really grasp is this mystical definition of love. Eden is quickly moving past Ruth, who only wants a nice middle-class life, and is still urging Eden to get a J-O-B. We're also given another way out for Eden, though, presented by his boss at the laundry, Joe Dawson, who wants him to just go out and abandon everything in his life and become a hobo. But yet another escape from the trap he's in is to marry someone like Lizzie Connolly, who loves him for who he is, but not the ideal of what he should be like Ruth. Well, that does it for this part of Martin Eden. We will see if he's able to make much of his career as a writer in the third quarter of Martin Eden, uh, the next 100 pages. So see you next time. If you enjoyed this, please rate, share, and subscribe. 
uh, leave a comment or you can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you and respond to your comments. I'd love to hear from you all, um, but I'll, I'll be back shortly with the next part of Martin Always fear